questions that I begun to ask myself was, okay, God, what do you want me to learn in this season? That became my new question. It wasn't always my question. I used to kick and scream and kind of act like a spoiled brat before. Like, why, why me? This is like, right. Woe is me type mm -hmm. of mentality. Um, you know, want to, you know, pity myself and, you know, want people to feel sorry for me and stuff like that. Like, I've been in those places just like many of us have. But my my response started to be, okay, what am I supposed to learn in this season? Mm. And then when I can focus on that, then I can carry that lesson with me into the next season, into the next season, into the next season. And that's how you grow. Yeah. I'm extremely passionate about helping corporate professionals transition into entrepreneurship. So I had to share the one thing, the number one thing that helped me develop as an entrepreneur, and that's the morning meetup. I joined the morning meetup specifically for the structure because I'm, I'm leaving corporate America, so I'm used to those morning huddles. We got our sales, we know what our goals are, and we get our day started. So I was missing that for two years before I even found the morning meetup. Now, the second thing that I really, really benefited from was the revenue. Revenue generating activities was not necessarily a thing before 2021. Now, I had my LLC, I had my website, I had a few clients here and there, but the momentum really took off as soon as I got around like-minded individuals and people who really knew the struggles that I was already dealing with that I could get over my fear of sales and communicating my value and putting myself out there on social media the friends that I've developed the mentors and the mentees that I've that I've created relationships with everything has really created this environment for us to thrive as entrepreneurs so if you want to develop as an entrepreneur you're leaving corporate america and you're trying to figure out how do i get my footing in entrepreneurship then the morning meetup will definitely be a game changer for you you can learn with us you can grow with us and i didn't even mention that we have a book club join us in the community let's get started today you will not regret it Welcome to the Work and Play Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Work and Play Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel Young, and I have the fabulous Dr. Campbell here with me. How are you? I'm well. I'm blessed. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so, for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, without, so one thing I want to do to set the tone is um, Dr. Dr. Campbell and I actually met through a mutual friend of ours who I met during my, my phase or my awakening in community engagement. And so because of that mentorship that I've, that I've um, developed, and actually you guys are, you guys are going to meet him, so we might actually, you'll see. But um, that mentorship, that community engagement, that impact, I can so, totally hear and I can't wait for it to like come out on the, on the screen. But without further ado, would you like to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Dr. Martin Luther Campbell. Um, I am an uh, a, uh, internal medicine resident at one of the local hospitals here in Atlanta. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Happy to tell my story. Um, happy to uh, provide some inspiration, hopefully, and uh, kind of see where this goes. Martin Luther Campbell. That sounds very familiar. How did you get your name? Well, I actually got the name from my dad. Uh, my father is, uh, he actually was a Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. fanatic. He would always recite the speeches from memory. Um, he educated my brothers and I about Dr. King's journey. Um, and growing up in the Midwest where, you know, blacks are not the majority like like it is in some places in the South um, and that they don't really teach really in-depth black history. Mm. Uh, it was really important that um, that, that kind of came from the home. And so I always hear stories about how, you know, I was the last boy and my mom had named my two older brothers and my dad was like, no, I'm going to name this one. And my dad said that he paced the hospital floor and he was thinking, he was thinking. And he said, you know what? I know what I'm going to name him. I'm going to name him Martin Luther King. But the doctors told him that he can't, that King is not our last name. So, <laughs> so that way he can't just name me, like throw King on my last name. So then he just said and was like, all right, we'll name him Martin Luther King. Okay, it still flows though. <laughs> I didn't know you couldn't just take a last name. Like, sounds feasible to me. <laughs> right, right. I don't know how it was back then, but yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, I appreciate you giving us some some background and some foundation. Um, I can even say, like, growing up in the South, I would I would say like we didn't get as much Black history as as I would say we needed. Um, mm -hmm. But you definitely walk with that air of of knowing who you are and whose you are. Mm -hmm. So before we get too deep into your your background, how did you get into the medical field? Yes. So it's funny because 
when I was in high school, I was actually on a business magnet. So we had magnets in our high school. They were trying to make it more college-like and you know, to try to, pre to <laughs> prepare us for college. So they had these magnets um, and I was in the business finance entrepreneurship magnet. And so I was always, I thought I was gonna be some type of like, some type of corporate guy. Um, and so I walk around with suits and stuff like that and they taught us how to talk to people and how to conduct meetings and you know, brainstorm and all these different things. But there was one teacher in particular who um, who was over my biology class and she made it so much fun. Like mm. I fell in love with it. I was like, wow, this stuff is like really cool to learn about the human body, to learn about nature, to learn about cells, to learn about organelles and how these things work. And I thought that stuff was just so cool because she made it so fun. And that was kind of like my first interest um, to kind of, hey, maybe I want to do medicine versus this business thing. Um, and then I ended up being good in math, ended up being good at science, and it just kind of came there. But actually, when I think about it a little bit more, I think my experience with falling in love with medicine kind of came a little bit before that when I was younger. Mm -hmm. My mom actually worked at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis as one of their cafeteria cooks. And so she didn't always have money for, you know, to pay for babysitters or for somebody to watch us or family members or what have you. So sometimes I would tag along with her to work. And when I would go along with her to work, I would hang out in the cafeteria, I would color, I would do, you know, do kids stuff or what have you. But I would always see like, you know, these people come down to the cafeteria in white coats and scrubs and stuff like that, mm -hmm. nurses and doctors, and even sometimes like the sick kids um, in wheelchairs and different things like that. And so I always had great memories associated with the hospital. And so I think subconsciously, you know, that was kind of instilled in me at the age. They're like, hey, I like being in the hospital. And so that combined with my biology experiences in high school, you know, kind of like bloomed into this career in medicine. Yeah, they always say if you have a good teacher, the only reason that you're, you're bad in, the, in a uh a class is because you don't have a good enough teacher to teach it to you. Absolutely. And I truly believe that. I believe that. So mm. shout out to the teachers out there. Right. Do you remember her name? We can give her. <laughs> yes. Her name is uh, Miss Holly Siasoko. Miss Holly, Holly Siasoko. Mm -hmm. That's dope. Yeah. Because my, my experience in biology was all actually the worst. I had to cut the little frog open anyway. Like, <laughs> so <laughs> it was just not it. So yeah. you um, developed this this kind of exposure, it was exposure to mm -hmm. the medical field that got you interested subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And then how did you, from there, you were in a magnet business program. Mm -hmm. How did you like curate your experiences from high school to get into college? Yeah, yeah, it was weird. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because at first I was like, all right, business, business, business. But then I was like, well, I'm actually going to major in biology now, biology pre-med. Um, so I was getting a lot of um, offers from a lot of different schools. I'm sorry. Uh, there was a possibility of me playing football. Actually, I was being recruited for football. Um, I was okay in it, but if you're decent at football and you got a 4.0 GPA, then you know mm -hmm. they're gonna try to recruit you. Uh, so I thought I was gonna play football. What was your What was your position? Because you got the whole. Oh, you know. Well, <laughs> some, some, uh, I, I'm, I played several positions because our high school team wasn't that good, but ultimately I played like middle linebacker, defensive end. And then I played some offensive line as well. So. I got you. You probably one of the two black men. They're like, oh, look, put Martin here. We got him. He's gonna, he's gonna do whatever we need him to do. Yeah, big facts. They was like, you play offensive side of the ball. You play defensive side of the ball. But yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've been playing special teams. I never like came off. I got you. It wasn't all that good, but no, I was out there. Yeah. I mean, well, see, they didn't want you to specialize in it. That's why we went into cardi cardiology, which is way better specialization, if you ask me. So pre-med and like um, I, I even said this to you, like when I was in college, the one deciding factor, if you were going to keep going down that path of being a doctor mm -hmm. was OCHEM. Yes. So oh. <laughs> what helped you get Woo. through your, your pre-med education? Yeah, I think community. Being at Morehouse College, we had so much community. People didn't just like let you fall through the cracks or anything like that. You had your group of friends that you study with um, and everything like that. And so that kind of helped me to push, you know, to keep going. I remember them OKIM days. I remember OKIM 1 and OKIM 2. I was on a struggle bus, like just, just to keep it real. Like cramming for them tests, pulling all-nighters, yeah. all that type of stuff. Like, yeah, all that stuff was difficult. But I think, um, I think just having a good group of friends, you know, I think being at a HBCU actually helped me as well. Mm. Maybe if I was at a PWI, I'm not sure. I can't speak because I wasn't at a PWI. But if I was there, maybe I wouldn't have felt um, 
or have had the confidence to persevere through something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but being at Morehouse College, like they instill confidence in you. Um, they instill work ethic in you. I had professors calling me into their office when they felt like I wasn't taking the class seriously. Um, Morehouse College had a policy where if you had three unexcused absences, they could drop you a letter grade. Other big schools, you know, with 300 people in the classroom, mm -hmm. they don't even notice that you're not there. And if you don't show up, that has nothing to do with them. Like they still got your tuition at the end of the day. But I think being in that type of nurturing environment, you know, helped me to stay grounded, helped me keep going. Got it. What do you feel like is the, the one thing that reminds you now that you're in this, this world of being a doctor that mm -hmm. takes you always back to that that um, structure, dare I say it, like at Morehouse? Yeah, I don't know. It's just like, I can't explain it. It's like you have to experience it. Mm. And I'm not trying to like, you know, sell or advertise for Morehouse College, but it's just something about when you're around other like-minded black men who are highly educated and highly motivated, when you're in that type of environment of someone who looks like you and you see success all around you, yeah. it becomes the norm, it becomes the expectation, and so you don't know anything different. Yeah. So I honestly, I just don't know how to be thing different. It just it just kind of comes with it. I really don't know how to explain it. Yeah, I can I can feel it. And I actually, <laughs> I went to a PWI, so I automatically recognize that level of confidence that a person has when they come into the workplace, when they come from the HBCU. It's like we have the same exact information in our mind, but that stature, like you can't take that, that away. So I can only imagine like the different experiences like you've mentioned. Your teachers actually call you into the office when you fall short. Like, 400 students in the classroom and my finance, you know, pr professor asking me for something. So as a black man, you're, like you said, it's a feeling, right? And you kind of just have this like knowledge about who you are, but then you decide to go even further into the medical program, which mm -hmm. once you start to go out of like the Morehouse yes. era, you're now in a space where you're one of how what a fraction of the of, of the team so a how did that transition work for you that's a very good question thank you for asking that because i do really want to highlight this as well so i didn't have a straight route from undergrad to med school some people go to you know undergrad for four years you know they take their mcat which is a medical college admissions t um, test um and they go straight in the following year mm -hmm. that wasn't my experience i ended up having a child when i was in undergrad um and so my pathway was a little bit different. On top of that, my maturity level wasn't where it needed to be. And I was very fearful of taking the MCAT. And so I pushed and I delayed, I pushed and I delayed until graduation came and I looked around and I'm like, yo, what am I gonna do? Like, I know I wanna be a doctor. I haven't taken my MCAT yet. I don't have a job. Mm -hmm. I don't have any money. What am I gonna do? At that time, um, my roommate, Paul, he was off to go work on Wall Street and stuff like that. And I was in an apartment by myself, like, like what am I gonna do? Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, I ended up having four gap years between undergrad and before I got accepted to medical. Okay. So I ended up moving to Texas. And when I moved to Texas, I started working a couple of jobs. I was doing unpaid research at that time, which I knew that if I continue to, I guess, have experiences that can somehow translate to medicine, then when I apply for medical school, it won't be like wasted time. Cause I already knew all the, all the admissions folks are gonna be like, okay, well you, were, you weren't in school this time, what were you doing? Mm -hmm. So you have to keep yourself, um, you, you have to find things to do to gain valuable experience to make sure that you're a, uh, a, uh, an attractive applicant when it comes to medicine and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I did unpaid research um, at Texas A&M and so my first paid job was actually working at a call center, making $10 an hour. And it took me forever to find that job. Cause you gotta keep in mind, I graduated 2012. So this was right in the, you know, right around the recession and everything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so it was very hard to find a job. I did graduate Morehouse with honors. I was a biology major. I was well-educated, well-spoken. However, I still had a very hard time finding a job anywhere. Yeah. It, was, it was really tough that year. Like, it was almost it was, impossible to find a job. Was it a call center in a hospital or a medical field? No, it was a call, <laughs> and it was actually somewhat business related. Okay. So it was a call center um, at a place where, um, I won't say their name, but what they do is that they kind of act as a, um, they kind of carry out the transactions of selling stocks 
for stockholders. Okay. Basically. So during that time, I learned a little bit about stocks and stuff like that. Still kind of somehow connecting to the business realm of things. Um, but at that job, to be honest, y'all, I was middle. I was middle. Every day I woke up, it was a struggle. Because number one, I wasn't living my dream. And then number two, I was trying to support myself and financially support my daughter, who wasn't living with me at the time, um, all on $10 an hour. Like it was, it was like nearly impossible. So I was very miserable and those were some depressing times. But, um, but ultimately, um, I ended up applying to medical school. I ended up taking studying, taking the MCAT, didn't do so hot my first time around. I still applied to medical school. I got one interview and that was Morehouse School of Medicine here in Atlanta. Okay. Went on the interview, everything went beautiful. I thought all the stars were aligning and then I didn't hear nothing back. I got waitlisted. And then after I got waitlisted, like right at the last minute, like end of April, end of June, they told me, oh, you didn't get it. So I was crushed. I was crushed. I was like, dang, I did all this studying. It's been like two years. I got friends who are in medical school and dental school and on Wall Street doing everything like that. And I feel like I was stuck. And that was a really difficult place. Were you doing all of this by yourself? Like you just were like doing the, the tests and, and working by yourself and applying and just hoping and praying. You, were you like talking to anyone? Was anyone helping you along this journey? Yeah, I had friends with me who were helping me, who were encouraging me. Um, I ended up also finding like a, um, a, another job in Cal Station. So when I left the, um, the, uh, the call center, I ended up having another job where somebody took a, a chance on me at a hospital that they, they had just built um, in the city. And I was like, I don't have no experience area whatsoever, but I want to be a doctor one day. And that person was like, all right, I'll give you a shot. Okay. And so they gave me a shot. I was working at the hospital, what we call a clinical lab technician. And so what they do is they draw blood from the patients who are in, in the hospital. Um, they take the samples down to the lab. They run tests on them you know, report the results. And then that's how the doctors get their results for all their tests and stuff like that. Uh, so I did that. Um, and so I met people during that experience. I actually met two other black men. I met one black man who was a nurse, but then he ended up getting accepted to pharmacy school. And now he's a PharmD, so he's a doctor. And then another um, gentleman who was a traveling nurse um, who was working there as well. And then we were all three. It, it was kind of weird because it was like we were like the three black men in this kind of like rural country college town in Texas somewhere. Um, <laughs> but we we're very educated and yeah. we kind of supported each other through that as well. Yeah. The top three responses that I get when I ask, why do you want to leave corporate America? Are that you want financial freedom, you want to own your own time, and you want to build a legacy for this generation and generations to come. Now, this is not a solo job. In order to transition from your nine to five into entrepreneurship, it's going to take community and it's going to take resources. And I've created the community of pioneers who are going to wrap around you and help you make that transition successfully. So if you're interested in leaving your job, go ahead and click that information below. Let's get into the community and let's transition from your nine to five into entrepreneurship successfully. Now let's get back to the episode. And then I also have my church family down there and it was at this church actually that i met the woman who was my wife now and so there were a lot of different moving parts at that time and so also having her support as well she actually bought me my first stethoscope that i actually used and i still have to this day and now my youngest daughter who's two years old walks around plays with the stethoscope and pretends to be a doctor which, baby who doctor. would have seen that <laughs> like you know what i mean like eight years ago mm. you see what i mean so like everything kind of came full circle mm. okay so, yeah. so the first round of of applying didn't necessarily go right so how did you get how did so i'm assuming yeah. this this parlay in this hospital is what got what made you look a little bit better as a candidate it made me look better so i i had some of that experience on there okay um so that made me look better but then I also ended up getting another job, so I, it is a lot. So I got another job at um, at the t uh, at the at this diagnostic lab where I was doing analytical chemistry. In other words, it was like an old chem lab, but we were doing it where we were taking animal samples and we were giving the the customers their results, you know, for pay basically. So we were doing all this like nerdy like laboratory type stuff, and um, I ended up excelling in that area as well. Also had my bosses there who really believed in me as well. I actually developed a um, uh, one of the testing methods um, to test um, basically vitamins E and A 
um, in serum and in tissue and horses. So I developed that there. Mm. And, um, and so those experiences, along with retaking the MCAT, during this time, the MCAT changed. The MCAT used to be out of 45 points and it used to cover these topics. Then there was a transition period where they switched over to where it was like out of 530 or 540 points um, and they had different topics. And so I was right at that transition period. And so I took the new MCAT the following year after I didn't get in. Then I got, I went to my interview once again. This time I only applied to one school because I knew where I wanted to be from last year and that was Morehouse School of Medicine. And so I applied there, flew out here. It was January. I remember it like it was yesterday. End up being an ice, you know, whatever, like ice apocalypse or oh, something yeah. like that down here. Mm-hmm. So they end up cutting our interviews short. They cut our tour short and everything. I'm dang, how this gonna happen on my interview, on my second go around? Yeah. So once again, I got waitlisted. However, during that time, I was praying. You know, I was talking to God. I was in, I was in the Bible every day. Um, I was really leaning on Him. Um, to get me through this and I really felt like like God was telling me like you know, like it was gonna happen like this was the time it was gonna happen this is my time so I actually talked to my wife about it. I was like babe I feel like this is you know this is gonna manifest it's gonna happen this time I was having dreams about being in medical school I was having dreams about you know I guess like the selection committee like you know going through my applications all these different things that that god was showing me and so i took a leap of faith and so i talked to my wife about it i was like babe we need to start saving up money because i feel like this is going to happen i had heard stories previously about people being accepted to med school like three weeks you know two weeks before orientation started because Mm. because somebody dropped out and a spot opened up yeah so my mentality was we need to stay ready just in case but once again, more houses in Atlanta, and I was living in Texas, so mm-hmm. keep that in mind. And we had kids and stuff like that. So this is what happened, y'all. So what I did was I told my wife about it. I was like, babe, is it okay if we just get ready and move to Atlanta and kind of, you know, take a leap of faith? Wow. Like, is it okay? And she was like, she was like, I trust what God is saying through you. It's just like, go for it. Do what you need to do. So what I did was... I went to my two jobs and I put in my two weeks notice, right? I put in my two weeks notice. This is like June. So for y'all that don't know, medical school year starts like July 1 and it goes from July to July. Okay. So it's not your regular year that goes from January to December. It's Mm -hmm. a July to July type of thing. This was July and I haven't heard nothing yet. Okay. <laughs> so it was so, like somebody would have so, been like, if it's not, if it ain't happening now, it's not exactly. happening. Exactly. And usually, and usually they like try to tell you by at least like April, May. Yeah. So I still haven't heard nothing, but I haven't heard a no yet either. I just heard I was waitlisted. So still going off faith. I went ahead. I put in my two weeks notice. It was at both of my jobs. I went in the office. I was like, listen, this is what's going on. This is what I'm putting in my two weeks notice. I put in my two weeks notice on Friday. Next Friday, I come to work. I'm running samples in the lab, listening to music, you know, whatever, just running my samples, doing my job. I get a phone call from a 404 area code. I was like, who would be calling me from 404? I was like, damn, I was like, Martin, you idiot. Atlanta, fool, like pick up the phone. (laughs) So I was like, oh, snap. So I picked up the phone. And next thing you know, it's one of like the directors over the admissions at Morehouse said, Martin Campbell, or Martin Luther Campbell, she said, and she said, we would love to have you join our class. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, like, I got to leave real quick. I, I was like, oh, you mind if I put you on hold? She was like, yeah, that's fine. So I put her on hold real quick. I got up out of the lab. I went outside. And I just like finished the conversation. And she was kind of telling me the next steps. Like, oh, you know, we're going to send this in the mail. Make sure you sign your contract. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. We'll do that. Dizzy to what you can expect. I'm going to send you a follow-up email, all this other stuff. And when I got off that phone, I kid y'all not. I'm not the kind of dude that really cry like that, but I cry. Mm-hmm. I cry. And I praise God because looking at everything I have been through, like all the ups and downs, all the left turns, right turns, you know, everything, all of the winding roads, everything I've been through, I have finally got to a point where now like my dream is going to come. Mm-hmm. And it was so hard during those years when I felt like I was stagnant and all my other friends and I was happy for them, but they were living their dreams. I just felt like I was stuck. 
And so I felt like I wasn't really living. I felt like I was just going day to day. I was just there. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so God made it happen. And from that point forward, it would, I got that phone call three weeks before orientation. But thankfully, because of my wife and I's obedience to what God was telling us, we already had money saved up and we had already had plans. And so it made the transition that much easier because what if that happened and we didn't make the preparations, then it would have been a struggle, but it wasn't a struggle, it was a transition. So we got the U-Hauls and stuff like that. We packed up and uh, on two hours of sleep, we drove 16 hours to Atlanta from, we moved our whole family to Atlanta and I was right there on time early on day one. Ready to go. Ready to go. And that ultimately led to me being Wow. That's that's amazing. I think the power of like you basically so I don't get very biblical, but when it comes to stories like these, I always think of Abraham. Mm-hmm. And he walked to the top of the, the mountain, not even knowing what was on the other mm-hmm. side of it. You quit your job. You were already in motion. Like, car was about to be ready anyway. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, here you go. But exactly. I think if, you, if it hadn't been for those steps that you had already taken, who knows what the story would look like, right? Mm-hmm. You would have been scrambling on the first day of medical school. And that just would have been, it would have been a whole other story, but that's not your story. So mm-hmm. I think, I always think of that when I think of the, like transitions, when we prepare mm-hmm. for whatever God has for us. I think mm-hmm. that's the most like, whew, thank you for sharing that. So, and we're only halfway through because yes, you yes. had prepared yourself for uh, a life in medical school, but getting accepted, I would, I would imagine, is the easy part. It's just the first step. So what, so what was it like? If you could, if you could explain, like, you know, for someone who hasn't been in medical school, mm-hmm. they may be just about to get into medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it? Anything that you expected, or, or did you experience things that you just, you know, never would have expected or could have have even prepared for? Mm. That's a very good question. So. There's a lot of different elements to medical school and different medical schools may do things differently. But for the most part, like, you know, they, you're going to get the same type of education. Um, so the first two years of medical school are what we call the pre-clinical, preclinical years. And that's a lot of textbook stuff, like just getting your foundational knowledge right. Mm-hmm. That's your knowledge in biochemistry, physiology, things like that, um, pathology, things like that. Basically, how the body is supposed to work. And then what happens when the body doesn't work the way it's supposed to? That's basically what that means. And then your last two years, your third and fourth year, are what you call your clinical years. That's when you actually get in hospital experience. You're actually part of a team where you're the med student on the team. You're learning. You're taking care of patients. You're getting hands-on experience. So I will say that those four years of not being in school actually helped me in particular to thrive and do a little bit better during my first two years of medical school. Mm -hmm. Why? Because during those four years that I had off, I was studying for the MCAT. I had to study for it twice, right? Because I took it twice, but I was studying for it on my own. So during that time, I had no distraction. I was just studying on my own and I learned how to study and how to effectively study according to my learning style. And that was something that's important because a lot of times in medical school, when you first start out, people are just learning how to study. Because when you're an undergrad, that's studying that you're doing. That's not studying. No. <laughs> and, and you don't know that until you have something that's a little more difficult that you can go back and compare it to and be like, yo, like, okay, well, that studying I was doing, when you just reading the book, you just highlight Memorizing. You just memorizing mm-hmm. for the exam and then you dump it all out. You brain dump what I call. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not real studying. And so, um, so a lot of times people are spending hours and hours and semesters and semesters just like learning how to study for them and how to be efficient because you only got a certain amount of time in a day. So basically other people will equate going to medical school, like trying to drink water from a fire hose. It's like, you might drown, you know what I mean? So, um, it's a lot of information to take in at once. And then how do you retain that information? And then later, how do you apply that information? Mm-hmm. And then how do you tweak that information to what we call the art of medicine? Because medicine is really an art um, to deliver effective care to your patients. So it's really difficult. So the fact that I already had two, you know, four years by myself studying, like knowing what works for me, I knew I like flashcards. I knew I'm a visual person, you know, so I knew what worked for me. So when I applied that right away, actually like the first, I actually really didn't struggle that much mm. in medical school because of a lot of the challenges that I went through before. So keep that in mind. Like, like it may feel like, you know, your challenges are unfair, but it's preparing you 
for your future and you just have no idea what it's preparing you for yeah i have a mentee all the time actually from when um paul and i were um um doing the career readiness program and he always asked me you know miss ari i'm like i am not miss ari but anyway he's like why is life unfair but the answer is always it's preparing you for your next level i don't know what your next level is going to be but i just know that you're going to be fine when you get there <laughs> so that's literally what you're explaining and i think anyone who is going through any test and trial just needs to ask not even why is this happening to me you, you might even just say, what blessing am I about to receive after this? Because it's always going to be a blessing, especially if you got your mind all right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other question, too, is whenever you're going through something difficult or even something great, because mm. I feel like you learn from challenges. But um, I think we can learn from the good things as well. But sometimes we're so busy enjoying the good things that we're not blunt, we're not looking for an opportunity to learn. Yeah. You should be learning in every season of your life because right. um, life is the best teacher. Um, but even in those trials and those difficult times, questions that I begun to ask myself was, okay, God, what do you want me to learn in this season? That became my new question. It wasn't always my question. I used to kick and scream and kind of act like a spoiled brat before. Like, why, why me? This is fair. Woe is me type mm -hmm. of mentality. Um, you know, want to you know, pity myself and you know, want people to feel sorry for me and stuff like that. Like, I've been in those places just like many of us have. But my my response started to be, okay, what am I supposed to learn in this season? Mm. And then when I can focus on that, then I can carry that lesson with me into the next season, into the next season, into the next season. And that's how you grow. Yeah. Thank you so much for watching the Work and Play podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Boss Up Conference, which is a community for entrepreneurs, CEOs, celebrities, and corporate executives to come together, network, and solve some problems. Thank you all so much for being supporters of the Work and Play podcast. And thank you for watching the Work and Play podcast and all the episodes before. Now let's get back to the episode. And now that you're grown, I think you, anytime, <laughs> the next situation that you go through, remember that. Because it's going to be, the more we go, get older, I think that the less whining we have. Mm -hmm. So, um, one thing, I always talk to people who are either doctors or in medical school. And the, the reason for going into the medical field could just be because, like, my family said so. Or this is the prestigious route. But very rarely do I get to meet someone who's kind of passionate about the field. Mm. And I can feel that from you. But I'm like, where did that passion come for the medical field? Like, when did you start being passionate to help people like that? That's a good point. Um, kind of going back to, like I said before, like seeing my moms in the children's hospital and being in that environment um, kind of started me off. But what I also didn't tell you guys, because, you know, I would be here for hours and hours telling you all the details of my journey. I was going through my own health issues during that same time when I was in Texas and I was working at a call center job I didn't like and then I was transitioning and then I got married and then all these different things like I was going through my own um, physical you know and mental struggles during that time and I remember one time in particular where like I didn't have health insurance um, I had a lot of medical debt from going to the ERs you know multiple times and one time in particular I remember I wasn't feeling good, so I was trying to go to an urgent care place. And I remember that they asked me, they were saying that, well, you don't have insurance, so you have to pay 100% or close to 100% of the visit up front. And I think all I had in my pocket was like my rent money. And they wanted like, it was like 300 or something, like three to $400 or something like that. And that was literally all I had in my rent was due like the next day. And they basically turned me away. And I went back in the car in my parking lot and I just cried. I cried because I was like, yo, I literally had to make a decision between like my health and keeping a roof over my head. Mm. And nobody, not in the country as well, these United States should ever have to make that decision. Mm. And so it was moments like that. I'm so sorry. Let me turn this off. I'm so sorry. All good, all good. I was not expecting. Uh, let me just turn this off real quick. While we are, no, we should be good. All right, cool, I turned it off. Um, Sorry about that. But yeah, so it was that moment where they basically turned me away because of my inability to pay to see a doctor that I went back in the car in the parking lot and I sat there and I cried because I had to literally decide between having a roof over my head and for getting the medical care that I needed. And nobody should ever have to make that decision, especially in a country as wealthy as the United States. Like that should never have to come down to do I eat versus do I get my medicines or do I have a roof over my head versus do I get my medicines or like it should never have to come down to that. Um, there's too much wealth and prosperity in this country 
uh, for that to be the case. But unfortunately, Absolutely. many patients face that example. Um, so I always kept that with me. And then also when I was here in Atlanta and I was here as a uh, as an undergraduate student, though Atlanta has been the single most place where I've ever seen, you know, this amount of black success and actual real black middle class, which they don't really have in Minneapolis like that. Um, there's so much poverty in Atlanta and there's and there's a large homeless population. Right. Um, and that's very um, that's very close to my heart. Because even my brother, who struggled with mental health issues, he was living out on the streets at one point in time by choice. And I think about how he was mistreated and things like that. And so the homeless population I have a very soft spot for. And so those type of communities and myself not ever seeing a black physician when I grew up, like those things all together is kind of what drives my passion to be at a place like you know, Grady and in Atlanta, serving the very same community. Um, uh, that I kind of grew up in. And so that's where my passion comes from. Yeah, that's a passion. That's a passion passion. That's like um, a deep-rooted, socially aware passion, not just like, oh, I like blood passion. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Um, and there's so much to get into with that. So, if, so with your, what I'm trying to connect is, your current your current specialization in cardiology, mm -hmm. right? With this severe like seed of social awareness that was planted in you clearly from a very like probably as an embryo, <laughs> right? And right. and how it's come to be. So the passion is not particularly for the heart, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. It's like what what says I need to specialize in cardiology? Oh, okay. That's a whole another thing. So cardiology in particular, where I love it because it makes sense, okay? Okay. Um, it's not just memorization, but if you look at it from like a conceptual standpoint, once you understand kind of like the basic things of how the heart works, mm -hmm. then it makes sense. And so I like things that make sense, okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing too, if you think about cardiovascular disease in the black community, like we are most disproportionately affected when it comes to that. Cardiovascular disease includes heart attacks, strokes, heart failure. And basically, once you have issues with your heart, it could pretty much affect any part of your body. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times your kidneys are affected, you know, other portions. Um, and so diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, all those things uh, contribute to cardiovascular disease. And who's more affected by that in this country than we are? How many people, how many family members have you had that, oh, they had a stroke? Yeah. I've seen so many black men with strokes at age like, like before they're even 50 years old. Mm. And they were once the primary breadwinner for their family, but now their family has the burden of having to take care of them. And they're, you know, not able to do for themselves yeah. like they need to. Mm -hmm. Why? Um, think about how come when you go to heavily populated black communities, you don't see a grocery store with fresh vegetables and fruits. What you see is liquor store, you see the convenience store, right. and you see chicken spots, right? Mm. Like, and you see fast food joints, like McDonald's and stuff like that everywhere. Like, why do you think that is? Like, those things didn't get there by accident. Right. And what's the result of that? We're dying off at very alarming rates, not only because of cardiovascular disease, that's one issue, but like, we can even go into the pandemic, we could talk about prostate cancer, we could talk about colon cancer, like all of that stuff, you know, um, hits us worse than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so um, seeing how that has affected our community and being that um, it, it, it sparks my interest just from my knowledge and kind of like a, a scientific, um, um, you know, kind of curiosity for me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I like car disease. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, my next um, my next curiosity. So I, I know you're also interested in the business side of, of the medical field, right? Mm -hmm. And from the outside world, right, the business side of the medical field almost contributes to some of these, like, these issues that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But because I know you're passionate about, now I know you're passionate about helping the black community, understanding cardiovascular diseases so that you can fix them. And because the heart is easy to figure out with the, the, the <laughs> pathways, now you're taking me back to biology. Mm -hmm. When you think about a solution, mm -hmm. right? Um, and and I know that this is going to come from both your awareness of about the business and the administrative side of, of the hospital, but also 
your awareness as a black man. When mm-hmm. you think about a solution, what is a feasible like uh, intersection between like profitable hospital business and mm-hmm. educating black people? If those are even the two variables that I'm inter- mm-hmm. that should be intersected. Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, um, I'm not an expert in the hospital administrative side and how to run that portion of it. Or just spitballing. Um, but just kind of from my initial thoughts, mm-hmm. there are, first of all, well, because I don't want to kind of become a political thing, mm-hmm. but being that healthcare and the idea of universal healthcare mm-hmm. is a political platform for some people or uh, um, a political enemy for other people, um, it ends up becoming kind of like this kind of political gray area. Right. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think that if you can make a hospital more efficient, there are a lot of wasteful things that happen in the hospital every single day. Mm. There are a lot of services for which, um, you know, services or supplies or medications are purely just overpriced. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be that way. And then also there are hospitals that literally turn people away because of their insurance status. And so my mindset was, I remember how it was for me not to have health insurance. I would like to open up, you know, a clinic or maybe even be, you know, be on the administrative side of a hospital that actually serves a community where they don't turn people away because of their lack of insurance. And so that ends up being part of the solution um, to me as well. Exactly how do you accomplish that as far as like all the nitty gritty? I have some ideas. I don't know those specifically, Mm -hmm. but um, I do think that, you know, if you have um, more people who are doctors Mm -hmm. and you have more people who are of color on those executive boards who are VPs of hospitals, who can advocate for the communities that they come from, yeah. then some of, these ch- some of these changes can take place. Also too, the VPs and the people who are at the tops of these hospitals and organizations, do they have to take such a big portion of the revenue in their pocket for their own personal reasons or can they feed that back into the community? And so there are a lot of different ways that you can still be profitable Okay, you can still take care of the community and you can still keep the lights on at the hospital. It's just are people willing, you know, to do what they need to do in order to make that happen? Or do people enjoy their lifestyle and their comfort? And as long as it doesn't affect them or affect the people that look like them, then they don't care. Mm. So, you know, I think um, I think by, you know, bringing more people to the table who look like these communities who mm-hmm. are affected, I think that helps a lot as well. Yeah. Those are just some of my thoughts. Those are great thoughts. And as you develop your leadership in the medical field, and as you get more and more opportunity to sit at the table, I totally can't wait to see some of these changes that you're able to make and keeping that mindset. Something that Richard Pryor said, um, of course, before he passed away was, um, just as we work up a certain system, you know, we go in with like these ideals. And then by the time we get to that level, we, we like forget all the reasons why we even started. So I would I would wish you and pray that you keep that that solidness. You have your support system. You have your wife. You have your um, your church community and your village to keep you grounded. So my only prayer is that when, when you get there, you actually can do some dip, some, some change, because I think you're right. It's up to. The people who are in charge to make those like decisions, which seem like hard decisions now, but how much does fun actually, you know, cost? And then being able to put that back into the community because that is your community. And right now there's no one in there who is a part of the community to care. So mm-hmm. I 100% love the vision. So keep keep going. And we could spitball too. I'm Absolutely. such, I'm such, this is my lane. Absolutely. <laughs> so as we think about like, you know, per, uh, leaders who are currently there and what, enjoyment might look like for them what does enjoyment in the medical field look like for you like i'm i only imagine when you were in the lab and you listening to your music when the call came in that's what you know that's what enjoyment looked like then but but what does enjoyment look like for you now enjoyment looks like just i'm i'm a people you know i'm a social butterfly i like to talk i like to learn about people's background just like share moments with people. So what's enjoyable for me is actually talking to my patients, learning about their stories, um, helping them, figuring out what their barriers are that kind of keep them from living the most healthy life that they can live, and then trying to meet them where they are. Like, I literally get enjoyment out of that. I get enjoyment out of interacting with my co-residents and my co-workers and my um, attending physicians. Um, I just enjoy just 
healing people mm. and helping people. Why? Because I have all of this in the context of where I was. And what that produces is an overwhelming feeling of gratitude and appreciation. Can you imagine all of the things that had to go right for a black boy who was born in Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana, right? Who father was incarcerated early on and whose mom was a single mother for a period of time and who brother struggled with mental illness and who nobody in my immediate family had a high school diploma to have all the different challenges that a lot of other black men and women experience from growing up in the inner city, whether it's gang influence, whether it's lack of seeing people who look like you succeed or understanding what a black middle class is or anything like that, to go through everything that I went through, to make it to college, to come down here, to not really have a full plan, to have a child in college, to move to Texas, to not have a full plan. <laughs> <laughs> um, to work at a dead-end job at that time, new opportunities open up, get married, you know, go deeper in my relationship with God, have kids, take a leap of faith, come back, get in med school, succeed in med school, went through other challenges that, you know, we didn't get to talk about all the way to this point now. You have to think of like, and then now seeing my kids are getting older and that they don't know anything different but this black success. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the thankfulness and the joy that I get to experience on a daily. Just not just having the having the perspective of where I'm at now and where I come from. And not only that, going deeper than that than where my ancestors came from. So that's why I go into work every day with a smile. It's not because everything is perfect, but it's because I have perspective and I'm thankful. So yeah. mm. You just tie that all the way up. But I, I am curious what it's like to be a young father. Hey guys, it's Arielle from the Work and Play Podcast. If you're getting any value from this channel, and I mean anything from the tutorials to the podcast to the random videos that you see on this channel, then I just ask that you do one thing. Please subscribe. Subscribe and share this to anyone that you think this resonates with. And drop a comment below so I know what other things that you want to see next. Now let's get back to the episode. Coming into his, you know, his his next level of residency, um, and managing like both husband, father, doctor, all in the same body, plus more man of God. Yeah, um, you know it's difficult. You know I'm not perfect by any means. I make a lot of mistakes daily. Yeah. Um, in fatherhood, in husbandhood, I make mistakes. In friendships, um, even in medicine, um, but I think just understanding that you know this is all a calling understanding that it's not about me, um, even though sometimes I like to think it is. Um, <laughs> but I think just understanding that like, that like this is all bigger than me and like this is not the end, you know what I mean? And like that gives me a peace and it gives me, um, it gives me the strength to kind of carry on, you know? I've always been the type of person that like, well, I won't say I've always been, but I've come to be a person that kind of strive with the more responsibility that I have. Because if I don't have a lot of responsibility, then that means it's just really just me. And I don't have a problem with, in a weird way, I don't have a problem with like letting me down. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But it's a lot more difficult to knowing that I have all these people depending on me, whether it be my patients, whether it be my kids, my wife, etc., cetera, um, my community depending on me, um, it kind of, it kind of makes me step up to the plate more. Um, because even it's weird, it's like sometimes we'll do for other people things that we won't even do for ourselves. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Or like sometimes we'll, you know, not want to disappoint other people, but we'll allow ourselves to be disappointed. But um, I think I kind of strive when there's more responsibility. And so and it's kind of like a place, it's, it's, it's more, it's kind of more comfortable to be in that place. It's weird. I don't know how to explain it. I guess it just means that I was meant to carry this weight. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as long as the good Lord continues to help me carry this weight, then I'll carry it. He won't put nothing on you that you can't bear. You know that, though. Yeah, yeah. And, and you also speak from a strength perspective. Strength, a responsibility is, is definitely a high up strength, uh, for some, strength for some people. And I never actually met someone who, like, uh, actually embodied it, right? Like, I, I, a lot of stuff, that, as you know, when you mm -hmm. read in the medical field, 
it's text until you have a client or a patient who actually presents with this. You're like, okay, this is what it looks like. So yeah, yeah. Um, I can hear your responsibility. I can hear that drive in you. And I definitely wish you all the success. So thank, thank you, you so much for joining me on this couch and sharing your story. Um, one last question for you. For sure. One thing I like to do on the podcast is reach back. Mm-hmm. And um, as we gung, you know, uh, drive forward gung-ho about like our dreams and our desires and you being a doctor and, and hopefully a CEO of a hospital or a clinic, there's always somebody behind us that's like striving to just make their next step. So when you think back to like whatever point it is that you like to share some wisdom, um, whoever that kid is, whether it's yourself or somebody who was right next to you but just didn't even make it, what would be that one word of wisdom, one word of wisdom that you like to share? Hey, I don't know if it could be one word. Um, no, not just, oh, yeah, just phrase, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when he says a word, he says a word. Right, right, right. <laughs> I think, I think, um, man, so much, so many lessons I've learned and so many lessons I'll continue to learn. Um, I think putting God first is the most important thing. Once again, none of my life story, none of this stuff will be able to happen without God. Um, so he gets the glory first and foremost. Um, and then the other things is like, kind of something that you said earlier is what I tell myself actually a lot. It's like, know who you are and whose you are. That will be my my advice. Keep God first, know who you are and whose you are. Mm. Because those, like those three things, they're connected. Because if you know whose you are, see what I mean? Um, Then you won't forget about putting them first. And then two, based on who he is, you know who you are. Um, and you won't forget that. So, yeah, know who you are, know whose you are. Because at the end of the day, right, and I, I want to put this in context for everybody. I care about my career. I love my career. But my career doesn't define me. If I wasn't in medicine today, I would still be Martin Luther Campbell. Your career doesn't define you, okay? You bring who you are to your career, but don't let your career you have some people, they lose their job, they lose their career, and you know they feel like they've lost everything because they put all their hope in that. You gotta have your hope in something bigger than that. So that way you can be grounded when stuff happens and that thing is taken away. Because mm. we can't control that, right? There's a lot of things that are out of control. I could work like like a dog. I could work to, you know, till I start sweating blood, whatever. But at the end of the day, like I can't control the outcome per se. But I can control um you know, where I put my faith in, who I rely on, my mentality, my outlook. And so, like I said, keep God first, know who you are and know who. And then everything else will, you know, work out around that. 100%. Thank you so much. I really have enjoyed your story. And thank you guys for watching. Thank you so much for listening. So, Dr. Campbell, yes. if there's someone out there listening to your story and they resonate with you, they want to connect with you, or they just want to continue watching you thrive, how can they get connected with you? Yes, you can get connected with me, uh, connected with me in uh, several ways. Um, you can connect with me by email, uh, martincampbell0125 uh, at gmail.com. And that's Campbell like the Sioux County, so with a P, C-A-M-P-B-E-L-L, <laughs> um, at gmail.com. Um, martincampbell0125 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram. It's dr.dr.campbell. Dr. Campbell. Um, I really don't be on Twitter like that. Okay. And Facebook, I really just like to talk to my family and stuff like that. So, yeah. So, hit me up on Instagram or you can, or you can uh, message me through Gmail. Okay. And, and we're going to get his LinkedIn together because yes, he didn't say it. LinkedIn, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a LinkedIn profile. I don't be on there as much as I used to, but we'll also get that information to you. Absolutely. It'll all be in the description. So, thank y'all so much for watching and listening. But until next time, peace out. Peace.